This episode is brought to you by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. The right financial intelligence platform can make or break your quarter. AlphaSense is the number one rated financial research solution by G2. With AI search technology and a library of premium content, you can stay ahead of key macroeconomic trends and accelerate your investment research efforts. AI capabilities like smart synonyms and sentiment analysis provide even deeper industry and company analysis. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker, also the founder of yetanothervalueblog.com. If you like this podcast, it would really mean a lot if you could rate, subscribe, review wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on either for the third or fourth time. I'm not quite sure which one it is. Uh, my friend and the founder of The Science of Hitting and dad-to-be, Alex Morris. Alex, how's it going? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed your podcast with uh, with Bill Brewster, our mutual friend. Anybody who hasn't listened should go listen. It's a good pod. I appreciate that. That's on a completely different feed. It's on the Business Brew feed, but please go check it out if you haven't. Uh, before we get started, I'll just do a quick reminder to remind everyone, as with every podcast, nothing on this in- podcast is investing advice. Always true, but particularly true today. Alex and I don't have a particular stock we're going to talk about, so who knows? Maybe we'll talk about 500 different companies. Maybe we're long all of them. Maybe we're short all of them. Who knows? But just remember, nothing on this podcast is investing advice. Please do your own work. Consult a financial advisor, all, all of that type of stuff. So Alex, the reason I wanted to have you on, aside from third or fourth time guests, I like having you on. It's fun. Uh, people seem to enjoy it based on our Twitter feed, is you published this great post almost a month ago now on letting winners run. And when you did, I instantly emailed you and said, hey, I've been thinking of something similar. I'd love to have you on to just discuss the concept. So people who haven't read it, I'll include a link to the Letting Winners Run post that Alex posted in the show notes. But I just wanted to turn it over to you maybe to start just Describe the concept of letting winners run, why you did the post and everything, and then I'll follow up with questions and everything. Yeah, well, first of all, obviously, thanks for having me. I always enjoy being on. Um, You know, I think the post is, in some ways, it was kind of a combination of thoughts I've been having for a while now, which kind of aligns to what we're seeing in the market generally in in terms of, you know, a handful of very high-profile names that have had strong runs for, you know, a very long period of time now, and people thinking about this question of, when to sell, do you ever sell, you know, that that type of thought process or questioning. And, you know, it aligns with some other posts that I've, that I've written recently. Um, you know, and probably the most notable one, which ties into to letting winners run, is this this idea of a coffee can portfolio, which which goes back to an investment advisor, I believe it was in the 50s, you know, long story short, they would, they would give out stock recommendations and he had a client who uh, would take those recommendations and put a fixed amount of money into all of them. I think it said $5,000. Um, but the one thing that this client did not do was ever sell any of the stocks when when the investment advisor said, hey, now's, now's time to take the profits and and to invest in something else. And when they looked at this client's portfolio after a period of you know 20 years or so, let's say, uh, what they found was a, a decent number of the positions were you know basically immaterial, worth $1,000, $2,000. They'd lost a lot of money. There were a handful that were worth $50,000 or $100,000, so it made 5, 10x or more. And then I believe there was one or two positions that were worth, you know, north of half a million dollars. So, you know, the advisor who who wrote this post basically talks about the idea of this client who had, you know, what seems to be a much more simplistic approach to to investing, um, how his outcomes were much better than what they achieved by 
spending all their time working very hard to decide when to buy and sell things. And it aligns with conversations that I've seen over and over again, you know, notably in The Art of Execution, which is a good book written by a gentleman who ran a Best Ideas Fund. He, he comes to similar conclusions in terms of all the managers that, that performed the best had a handful of positions that had grown to be very large in size. Um, you know, there's a great quote from Gavin Baker along the same line. So it's just something I've seen over and over again from investors that I that I respect, who are clearly intelligent, and who have been playing the game for a long time. So I just I find it very interesting to think about. That's great. So you did mention best idea funds, and I think that's actually one of the things I had in my mind when I was emailing you. But so I want to come back to that. But let, let me ask you my first question. Like in 2021, one of the most frequent things, and I think I know the person who started the scene, but I won't call them out uh, and not call them out. I won't identify them because I don't know if they'd want to be identified. But I heard from multiple investors uh, a story that would go like this. What's the biggest mistake Stanford ever did? The biggest mistake Stanford ever did was in 2004, 2005, they had a big position in Google and they sold all of their Google stock. And if they had just held that Google stock, the Google stock would be worth a trillion dollars. Or if they, you know, another that comes to mind recently is uh, Bill Ackman. He's been criticized in Harvard nonstop, not trying to turn this into a political podcast. But one of the things he criticized them was he gave them uh, equity in a smallish Asian startup. And he said, hey, I think this is a killer. I'm giving you this equity. Uh, you cannot sell this, right? If this equity, like I think the story is if it goes up more than five times, I get to choose the proceeds of whatever above five exited. And the equity went up 20 times and it turns out Harvard had sold that, right? So I, I would hear these stories of people saying the biggest mistake Stanford ever did was selling Google in 2004, 2005. And that that is true, you know, but I do think there's a lot of hindsight bias there. And I can tell you, a lot of the people who were saying that in 2021, they were holding these huge winners, you know, that with, again, with the benefit of hindsight, were really benefiting from the Zert bubble, uh, you know, were way, way overvalued. It just, you know, in 2022, it really went against them. And that's not to say these people weren't smart. The ideas weren't great. Maybe they come back. Who knows? But, you know, I, I think, again, with the benefit of hindsight, they'd probably look back and say, oh, maybe I should have trimmed a little bit of that. So I guess my first thing would say, like, you know, a lot of we can talk selection bias. We can talk, but what would you say to people? Who say, hey, Alex, you're coming and telling me this, and like we can, we'll talk Microsoft, we'll talk all these, but you're you're really using hindsight bias here, right? If I had said the same thing about holding Enron in 2000, and I was like, the biggest mistake would have been selling Enron in 1998. Well, the biggest mistake would have been holding Enron in 2000 because it was going to zero real quick. And we can point to dozens of other examples. You know, Sears was the best performing stock of all time. What would you say to that kind of selection hindsight bias uh, pushback? Yeah, in the article, I should mention that the client from the coffee camp portfolio, the position that was largest of all was Xerox. And, um, you know, obviously over time, that eventually got to a place where you would not have wanted to have had 80% of your portfolio in Xerox. So it's, you know, very specific. It, it aligns with that example perfectly, right? And I think I, I wrote about this as well as it relates to, to Coca Cola and Berkshire's investment, which I find fascinating that I believe Buffett started buying in 88 or 89. He bought yep. his last share in 94. At the peak, it was worth, I believe, 35% of the equity book. And he has not bought or sold a share once in the past 30 years, since 1994. And I think the my takeaway from it is less so about has Coca-Cola been a great investment or not. And there are obviously lessons to be learned there. It's more so just getting into understanding the mindset of someone who's able to do that. Because that's very far away from how I think people probably approach investing generally, especially smart people, right? People who spend a ton of time working at investing and are, are thinking of a portfolio as you know, a collection of securities with implied 
IRRs over, you know, some time period, five years, 10 years, whatever it may be. And they kind of back into sizing and selection based on that criteria. And it's interesting to think how, how different approaches may approach that question very differently and, and how it kind of works out. So it's, it's less of a, this is the best way to invest more of a, it's very interesting to see this very different style of investing from what you normally see and how it can work when obviously it works well. Right. Just on, on the Buffett piece. So I, one of the things, and you, you mentioned this in the article, so I, I'm very much stealing what you were saying, but you mentioned, Hey, you know, it's interesting. Buffett did this and he never bought or sold a syrup, but he did have, I don't want to say other sources of income because it wasn't Buffett who had the other sources of income, but Berkshire had the insurance float, right? Every year, you know, they, they're great. They've got great advantage insurance businesses and they started buying more businesses. So every year they had more cash coming in. And you mentioned the advisor who kind of just coffee can portfolio it. I think one of the things you said for both of them is they could, maybe they could coffee can a little easier because they had more income coming in on the side. So they knew, and that's great. But I think, you know, my pushback there would be if you're a professional investor, you're an aspiring professional investor, like you have to look at your portfolio every day. Like it is the only thing that you're going to make. And, you know, the coffee can portfolio sounds great. But my second pushback would be, hey, if you need this other source of income to do it, like you're kind of saying you need to put option on yourself almost, or you need, you know, you're, you're kind of under, you're taking under optimization in the, your portfolio because you've got other income, uh, you know, and even if you've got other income, like if you were someone who was fortunate enough to save, let's say $10 million and you have a hundred thousand dollars per year income, like hundred thousand dollars per year is a decent chunk of change, but it, it pales in comparison to the $10 million. So if like one stock had run up to 80% of your portfolio, it would be kind of tough to be like, well, I've got a hundred thousand dollars of income, but I've got this one $8 million position. So I guess that would be my second pushback, you know, like is, is this really optimized investing when we're looking and saying, Hey, it only works when you've got other income sources to go on. Yeah. I mean, I think that the put my, my question back would be what does optimized mean and what are you trying to optimize for? And I think that's where, that's where, that's where it gets grayer. Right. And that's where we get outside of the black and white thought process of what it means to be an investor. And I, I think that's where it gets, the conversation gets messier and you get into these questions of, you know, what part of this is quantified IRRs and what part of this is faith in a management team or a manager, faith in a business, faith in a TAM, you know, these are things that you can have thoughts on, but obviously can't know with any certainty. Um, I think the cash flow consideration, you know, warmed up in, in 2000 or whatever you want to pick during that time period when, when the position got to a very, very large size, they could have very, very reasonably assumed that if you looked at over the next 10 or 20 years, that even if the position underperformed by, you know, some, some, some amount of margin relative to the index or another opportunity on, on a pre-tax basis, let's say, um, you know, he had reason to believe that the position was going to become much smaller over time. Now, does that justify the decision? I don't think so, but it, it does make the decision different that if you were sitting there with the portfolio and you were thinking, I need, I need to take cash out of this every year for the next 20 years. I think that would that would impact your your thought process and what was the appropriate thing to do. And obviously, there were other considerations there, like like being on the board of directors, directors etc. Um, but yeah, my main takeaway on most of this stuff is it's it's ultimately a, a personal decision based on kind of your your desired way to approach the game, which obviously should hopefully align with something that can work well over time. Um, but then structuring your process and, and decision-making to align with that. 
And now a quick break to remind you that this episode is brought to you exclusively by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. Luis, one more question. So you have, actually, I'm going to ask a lot more questions, but uh, just one more. The the best fund managers, and I, again, I want to return to the concept of best funds, but what he said is, hey, I know of no great investors who haven't you know, had one or two big winners that grew to a huge percentage of portfolio. And I guess I would just ask, how much of that is resulting or selection bias, right? Okay, cool. If we start with 2,000 managers and 40 of them have these you know, mega home run winners, Yes, your 40 best investors had 40 mega home run winners, but there are 1,960 others and maybe they weren't as smart. Maybe they were just as smart. Maybe they were smarter, but they didn't have the mega winner. So you don't point to them. Like how much of that is just, yeah, it, it's, you know, you had 2,000 monkeys and 40 of them threw the stock and hit Apple or Tesla or Netflix and their returns were incredible. But the 1,960 of them threw the stock and hit Cisco or Oracle. And I'm just naming names, but stocks that didn't have sure. quite as good of returns, you know, uh, Wells Fargo in 2014 is one that I really like to mention because I can go back. I put a post up. We can probably include a link to it as well. You know, Warren Buffett as recently as like 2011, 2012 was saying Wells Fargo was his opportunity cost. Every time he thought about buying more of a stock, he would just say, why don't I just buy more Wells Fargo? And two years later, the Wells Fargo scandal comes out. The stock's gone nowhere for a decade and Buffett's now sold all of his Wells Fargo. So I I, I do, you know, I, I just wonder how much of this is selection bias. So I, I guess I'll turn that over to you. No, I think it's a fair question. I mean, it, I think there's other valid, you know, for example, art of execution is based on he manages fund. I think it's over a seven, eight, nine year period, right? So we're not talking about isn't like some multi-decade study covering. It, it, I wouldn't say it's not the most that uh, you can ask questions about the results of the study. Let's say um, but again, I think the the bigger point is one, obviously avoiding avoiding extremes and just thinking about what is what is kind of the lesson here. And again, how does it? People can look at their own portfolios. How does it compare to to your own portfolio construction is as you look at the value of your portfolio and say you know what percentage of, percent of it is from companies that have been in there for more than three years more than five years whatever it may be and again are you even is that even a desired outcome or condition that you want your portfolio to have i mean that's a that's a question for people to answer for me it is but it's because i'm trying to invest in a certain way so again it's always up to the people for them to decide what they think is the most appropriate way to invest their money based on their own considerations, right? Uh, just on, if you're looking for the letting win winners run strategy, right? Right now, if you had invested the past three years, the best answer would have been either by, uh, you know, Apple, Microsoft, or an AI winner, NVIDIA would have been a great one. But it does strike me, the example you gave for Buffett was Coke, and the example you gave for kind of a retail person who was copying it was Xerox. And the reason that strikes me is Coke and the other the other stock I named for Buffett, Wells Fargo, those are timeless businesses, right? Coke has been around since the late 1800s. I think it's pretty safe to say people are going to want to drink something that they enjoy. You know, we can talk about sugar issues and all this sort of stuff, but I think it's probably pretty safe to say 200 years from now, people are probably going to be drinking Coke. Maybe it'll be a Diet Coke with a better, you know, zero sugar. But I, that brand is pretty timeless to me at this point. Wells Fargo banking, it's what's the joke? It's the second oldest business in the world. Like you can feel pretty comfortable 200 years from now, there's going to be banking. Maybe the 
with nuts and bolts changes, but maybe it, don't, it doesn't, right? Like I think crypto has taught a lot of people, hey, the, the banking system is pretty nice reason. So Buffett, like his forever businesses, the businesses he's let run, if you think about Geico Insurance, American Express, credit card slash banking, the businesses he's really let run have been forever businesses. The most recent example is Apple, which that's interesting because it may be not be forever business, but it's probably more forever than some of the uh, Magnificent Seven, I would probably say. But anyway, he's got these forever businesses that are timeless. The example you cited of the coffee can portfolio, the big winner there was Xerox. And a, a lot of the big winners, when I think back to the Google examples, the studies I said earlier, or the people earlier with Google, they were not timeless businesses. And I, I just want to ask you, do you think there's something to that? Like Buffett was choosing forever businesses for these letting winner runs example versus, you know, maybe an analyst or someone else is choosing a business that probably has got a great five-year outlook. But maybe if you looked out like 20 years, you could say, hey, there might be some terminal value risk. I should throw this stat in because it always fascinates me from what I did work on on Fever Tree, which is a uh, basically a cocktail mixers business. They make tonic water and things like that. Fever Tree's sales volumes last year was 700 million units, and Coca Cola's daily unit volume is two billion units <laughs> around the world, which just gives you a sense for the scale of that that business. It's, it's fascinating. But yeah, I think the point you're making is spot on. I think I mean Buffett stopped talking about this this ex explicitly at some of the annual meetings in terms of. How he thinks about security selection and position sizing it's very much framed around certainty of outcomes as opposed to you know again like an irr driven framework or you could obviously make some adjustments for for risk reward but he very much leads with what's my level of confidence in terms of where this is going to be five to ten years down the road so i think it's a very fair point you know the other part of it is there's there's this article from a couple of years ago which we've been talking about hindsight bias and resulting but about this i believe it's a dentist or an optometrist in in West Palm, who has this portfolio that's worth a ton of money. And, you know, he had companies like Cisco, companies like General Electric, but they just shrunk to an immaterial size over time. This is just, it's not performed particularly well. But he also had a $5 million investment in ICO dating back to, I believe it was the mid 80s. Um, and he knew the people there personally, the Mendelssohn's, I believe their name is. And he had done scuttlebutt that gave him a lot of confidence in the business. And that $5 million investment is now, or at the time when I wrote about it, was worth more than a billion dollars. And, you know, I think your question's a fair one. I think he also probably recognized that the company is well positioned in that part of the value chain and that they had opportunities to grow over time through M&A. And, you know, it's it's only been uh, 30, or, 30 or so years, but so far he's he's looking pretty good on that call. So again, I don't think any of it's black and white and, and maybe it comes down to a question of as positions run and as they become larger and larger percentages of, of your portfolio, how do you think about sizing. Maybe the answer isn't to just let them run forever and never touch them. Maybe it's to prim, but with less aggressiveness than maybe you would if you were purely looking at things on a, you know, next 12 month PE or something like that. That's great. Let me ask, uh, let me ask one more here. So right now, I think when people think of a letting winners run forever, and this is very related to the terminal value question, people think a lot about Netflix, right? And that's interesting. I mean, Netflix is a great company. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But if I just went in media 10 years ago, if I was like, hey, what's your forever business in media? People said, oh, that's easy. The cable networks, right? Paramount. Uh, I mean, they were literally the greatest business models anyone's ever imagined. Whether people watched them or not, they got paid you know, $2 per month and no CapEx, incredibly high returns. 
Uh, they were fantastic, great economies of scale. So, you know, if you were a cable network, you and cable network one, and you bought cable network two, and you uh, you could say, go to your cable distributors and say, hey, now more people watch us. We used to charge you a dollar per month for each of these. You got to pay us a dollar twenty five per month for each of these because now we've got even more things. So it, it's just curious. Like ten years ago, you would have said cable networks. Twenty years ago, you would have said Blockbuster. You would have said, hey, these guys have this great brand. They've got the great. Uh, this great mode in terms of returning. They they have scale purchasing power when it comes to buying VHS. 30 years ago, you would have said newspapers. And it does just strike me like media is a forever business. But I, just when I was thinking about Netflix, I was kind of struck by how much the forever business in media has changed over the 10 years. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I, I just did think that was interesting. So I just kind of want to toss that over to you as you think about these letting winners run business. Yeah, I wrote another article about this recently where I I kind of let off with this quote from Ken Langone, who's had big investments in companies like Eli Lilly and Home Depot for a very long time. Obviously, have been you know fantastic investments. And when he was asked on CNBC and his kind of his selection process of investing, he basically said it's all about the people. And I think I think that's a hugely important part of all this. And again, it's messy because this is not uh, investment people, smart investment people. <laughs> I think they do not like these things that are that are a little bit harder to get your arms around, but what's are hugely important over time. And, you know, I wrote about this in the context of Microsoft and cloud computing and, and Satya Nadella. And it's very clear from looking back on the story that if, if he had not been put in charge of server and tools and then eventually became CEO of the company, you'd probably be looking at a very different story today than what actually played out. And, you know, I think part of being a minority investor and particularly a long-term investor is doing the best job that you can to try to piece these things together as they happen. You know, you may not, you may not get there until three years after major developments or something, right? It, it might take a lot of time. In some cases, it may not even be something that you can can ever truly get your arms around, even with doing a good amount of scuttlebutt. So the, but to the extent that you do find these things, I think you have to put a lot of weight on them as opposed to, you know, again, just going to more quantitative driven approaches to how am I going to think about position sizing and security selection. It so that's another interesting one. So just on the management piece, like most of these, you know, the Magnificent Seven, I, I think most people today would say have uh, generally top tier management, right? I guess the two things that are interesting there, if you're letting winners run forever, like eventually you do have to think about a management change. But just if I even took the Magnificent Seven, right? Two years ago, if you and I had been having this conversation 18 months ago, Facebook stock would have been at 150 on the way to 100. And, you know, Facebook was burning money like crazy on uh, Meta Labs and everything. I don't know if people would have said Zuck was this visionary CEO at the time. A lot, of, I know a lot of people were like, "Hey, I, I wrote articles." I mean, I wish I'd done this. But I wrote articles. I was like, "Hey, this is the guy who took Facebook from mobile to desktop. He from desktop to mobile. He bought Instagram. Like, you've got to give him a little word." But I know a lot of people were like, "This is insane. This is uh, he's burning all this money." I don't know a lot of people would have put him in that category. You know, Microsoft is one. I think even when you bought it at the time, Balmer was running it, right? And Balmer, I think the best thing that ever happened to Microsoft is they made the switch to Satya when they did. But if they had made it a few years later, like the it, we could have really been talking about terminal value there, right? So I guess yeah. my two questions on management, and we'll go back to Microsoft in a second. Like, how important is management when you're letting these winners run? Because management does change over time, and it does strike me that the same management team can get viewed very differently. You know, even with Zuck, inside of 18 months, he can get viewed very differently. Yeah, I mean, I'd say for one, you you, you know, you certainly need to have your own your own perspective on the answers to these questions. And if if, if market price action is going to greatly impact your views on 
on something like this. And that's, that, that's probably going to be an issue. So that has to be addressed, you know, at the investor level, you know, in, in the case of Microsoft is a very fair point. And for me personally, it started out as a very traditional value investment. And, you know, I think it stayed that way for, for a long time until the, you know, call it 2015, 2016 period where a stock that I've been trading at, let's say 10 times for, for many years now found itself trading at, at 20 times and, you know, started to look expensive on how people had viewed that business for, for some time. Um, you know, in hindsight, that was at $55 a share or something like that. And, you know, today it's at 400 or whatever it may be. And that some of that has been due to multiple expansion, but a very significant part of it has been the earnings have gone from 250 to, you know, something in the $15 range or whatever it is. So we're getting there. So, I mean, I think that that's a good example of, again, you know, continuing to follow the story and learning over time. I can explicitly remember when, when Satya Nadella was named CEO, there was a, a common response, particularly in the financial press that they hired an insider and this was not going to work and they made a mistake. They should have worked with an outsider like Alan Mulally and, you know, that this, this was probably the end of, or things were going to continue to get worse for Microsoft. And I remember explicitly reading a, a blog from someone who had a, a smaller software business that was acquired by Microsoft and he worked under Satya Nadella after that deal. And his perception was that what was being said about Satya to the extent things were being said about him was exactly wrong and that he was the perfect position, perfect person for this position and that he was going to be able to implement pretty significant change in terms of where the company is focused. And I think now if you align, if you align that period of time with what he writes about and hit refreshed and, and he pieced it all together again with the benefit of hindsight, you, you start to really understand how important it was that he was there. So you know, there's no question that management is hugely important. As I kind of wrote here recently, I think the arc of the the arc of the quality of the business bends over time to the quality of the management team. After you have something like AWS, obviously is a very prominent example at Amazon. And I think as an investor, you have to do all you can to to see where the crumbs are at and and what they're suggesting in terms of is this a very good team or is it a team that you know is is lacking in some way. So a notable example recently, at least in my mind, is when I see someone like Gavin Baker in an interview say that. Google has been horribly mis mismanaged over the past couple of years. I, I think he understands these things. He understands that company in particular much better than I do. So if I hear someone like him saying that, it would it would strike a core with me. And I would I would think seriously about what that means and and to the extent I could get the answer myself, whether or not that was right. You know, I just one thing you said in there, you said the arc of the business bends over time towards the arc of the management team, or I think you said the quality of the management team, which is interesting because I, I would have a, a conflicting view and a similar view. Like, you know, the conflicting view is that is the direct opposite of Warren Buffett's when the quality, when a management team with a good management team meets a bad business, it's the business that wins, right? That's mm -hmm. the exact opposite. But at the same time, I would say, hey, you invested in Microsoft in 2012, right? If you bought Microsoft in 2012, Azure and all the online tools, Microsoft 365 subscription as a service, no one, you could not underwrite that there. You didn't even know about that. A lot of people have written Amazon, you know, for the past 15 to 20 years. If you did that, AWS launched in what, 2006, 2007? It was not an yield mover, right? You bought it because you said Amazon, dominant retailer, best in breed management with Jeff Bezos. And it is just interesting. These guys pulled, I mean, that's literally pulling a rabbit out of your hat, right? If you bought Facebook 10 years ago, you bought because you're like, Zuck's a killer. And you didn't have, hey, we buy Instagram for a billion and WhatsApp for 33. And these are like two of the best acquisitions of all time. But it is, it is just interesting. These are management teams that, as you're saying, are bending the business towards their arc in direct conflict. I, I guess my off the spot question would be, is that something unique about big tech? 
where they can quickly pivot and the management team, because the scale is so infinite, because I would say like steel, which is known as not a great business, right? Even if you've got the absolute best manager in steel, and maybe this is disproved by like the new for example and everything, but even if you got the best management team in steel, can't really pull a rabbit out of your hat, right? Cool. We've got a specialty steel company. Your multiples going from five to five and a half. It's not like you're going to grow like crazy. Uh, is it something unique to tech or am I kind of missing something? Yeah, I would say the keyword is is bends, right? And you don't you don't want to you don't want to test the theory by picking a very crummy business and then say, okay, this guy's the best manager. Let's see if this works out. Um, preferably, you're gonna you're gonna pair a very good business with a very good manager. And I, I certainly would argue that you know it's again part of the reason why I invested in Microsoft in the first place is because there were components of that business that I thought at the time were very very strong and were um, you know they had challenges ahead for sure, but the positions that they held that in Windows, the position that they held with Office, the position they held in server and tools, while there were certainly challenges ahead and as always required effective strategic decision-making and management to to get them to where they needed to, be, needed to be five to 10 years down the road, I still thought the starting position was very, very strong. And obviously you can look at the, the P&L or the cash flow statement at that period of time, the balance sheet, et cetera. There were, they had a lot going for them, even during a period of, of clear stress. You know, obviously we could say something very similar to with Zuck and Meta, you know, in late 2022, a lot of things were going against them. They were businesses are not doing particularly well in some ways, um, huge FRL losses. But when you put it all together at the end of the day, it wasn't like they were fighting for solvency or something. So I think that's that's a huge part to add in here um, to the discussion. Let me just, so on the pulling rabbits out of your hat, right? One of the things I have had the most trouble with in my career is picking losers, but also thesis drift. Like most of my big losers come from thesis drift and it, the thesis drift generally looks something like this. Let, let's use a very simple example. Hey, the stock's at 20. I'm buying it because they're undergoing a strategic review. I think this strategic review is going to be fierce and I think it's going to go for 30, right? And then six months later, hey, the strategic review failed because I think the company won in 30 and nobody would bid higher than 27. I think they were wrong. The stock's at 15 and now it's starting to look cheap. And I think we'll have a strategic review again in six months. And let's go forward six months. The stock's at 10. Yeah, the industry's not, not not doing well, but now it's cheap. And I think they're going to be buying back shares. And then let's forward six months later, the stock's at five, but this is option at, option value at this point, right? So I have thesis drift the whole way down. I guess with Microsoft, and I, I wondered this, and I think several people wonder this, and you could wonder this with someone who bought Amazon a few years ago. Like pick your, Apple at 10 times PE six years ago versus Apple today are very different stories, right? The thesis drift where, hey, Alex, 12 years ago, you bought Microsoft because it was at 10 XP and you saw these great businesses. And now you have very successfully held it the past 12 years or so. But at some point, this became thesis trip, right? You had a, I am buying this as a value metric. I am buying this as a value play. And now it's become, it's a GART play. And now it's become, it's a takeover the world play, right? And in my thesis drift case, like it's negative, right? You should have just, and in your case, it was positive, but I could also paint the, hey, we, we did the Stanford, don't sell the Google thing. And we went from 10 to 30 and then we, we didn't sell. And then, you know, how many people have shown you a stock of Oracle or, or even Microsoft, you know, it hits a share price in 2002. And if you held it from 2002 today, you did actually, you've done decently given the recent, but from 2002 to 2016, the stock is flat, right? It takes a while to really backfill that. Like when does that come into play? I don't know if any of that made sense. Yeah, I think that's 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 when it all matters, right? <laughs> this, this is a big question to be answered. And I, you know, I think again, it comes down to your your assessment of the position of the business. Obviously, some thoughts on Ham or something like that. How big can this be over time? What's the opportunity? It comes down to the quality of the management team, competitive position, et cetera. 
Um, you know, to put a very specific example on this, if, if Satya Nadella announced he was retiring tomorrow, that would be a an announcement that would be problematic for me that I would need to seriously think through in terms of my my level of confidence in the business as we looked out 10 years and and what that meant for position sizing, even if on the market, right? So that would that would impact my decision making. Um, my hope is that he's still relatively young and that he decides he'd rather do nothing else in his life besides stay here for a very long time. But yeah, those those are all those are all relevant considerations. And again, I think some of the some of the trouble with some of these things is when it gets so black or white and and you have to live in one all in camp versus the other all in camp. You can always make positions smaller. You can you can do things on the margin that maybe you're not perfectly aligned with one worldview, but that again, like bend in that direction. And I think that's really where my head goes. It's how how do you get yourself in a place where you can make a little bit longer term and really not be in the position where when you find the best management teams and the best businesses that you're capable of finding, you push yourself out of them purely based on, you know, traditional valuation metrics. And there is a limit to that, but I think it's, uh, if, if the past 10 years or so are any indication, it can also be the cause of very significant stress when you look back. And again, some of the quotes that I mentioned at the outset, right? Let me give you another just counter example, you know, three years ago, so 2021, uh, if you and I had this conversation like Disney, one of the best businesses ever. Iger, I, I believe Iger had, he retired in 2020, but you know, the after effects of it hadn't really started seeping in. I'm like, this is a great business, right? They Disney Plus is a killer. Look at Marvel is the most successful franchise in history. Star Wars, okay, the last Star Wars film wasn't great, but they got Mandalorian. I'm pretty excited about the future there. Like we would have been really bullish. Parks are great. Uh, ESPN struggling, but they they found a bottom probably, and they still got all these great assets. Uh, Disney Plus is thriving. Iger was one of the best media CEOs of all time, right? Uh, a lot of people would be running them in the coffee can portfolio as they have for the past 50 years pretty successfully. But, you know, if you've studied Disney, also over 50 years, if you close your eyes, it did really well. But there were a lot of down peaks there, right? There's the early 90s. There's the mid 2000s. Like, there are a lot of bad places for Disney. And I guess today, if we came forward... The whole story has changed, right? Everyone points to this and be like, oh, those guys are effed. Like, yeah, you know, theme parks are going to be good. I'm not calling for them to go bankrupt, but they're caught up in these crazy culture wars that we certainly wouldn't have been talking about in 2021. Like the state of the state of Florida against Disney. Like who would have imagined that in 2021? That's crazy. Disney's the huge, biggest employer there. Uh, nobody would have imagined any of that. Iger's come back, but now people think Iger's crazy. The whole strategy, like I think a large part of his success for his success for failing was, you know, part of it's on his successor, but a lot of it is he was actually executing the Iger strategy. And in hindsight, it wasn't a great strategy. Iger looks way worse. So we've got this business that was forever with the best CEO out there. And now just three years later, you're like, Hey, this business sucks. And Iger is a fool. I I, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy how time shifts. So I guess just on that, do you have any takeaways from that? Would you take like, would you say the view three years ago with Disney and Iger was actually more close to reality than the view today do you think like zerp and just post-covid effects were actually masking some real weakness at disney and Iger? any takeaways from that uh, example i think my biggest takeaway and, and it it mirrors something that i that i saw at walmart through the 2010s that was another example after, i had on my list absolutely yep particularly after doug mcbillan became ceo and i think in hindsight i mean at the time as well but in hindsight i, I think there's the strategic decision making under his leadership in my mind has been very, very good. And he's got the position, the business in a much stronger place than where it was when he got there. The problem is it required many, many years of significant PL investment, particularly in terms of getting some of the omni channel stuff in place 
that the company had effectively missed in, in prior years. And playing catch up was, it took a lot of time and it cost a lot of money. And I think Disney is a, a very similar story at the end of the day. It was, um, it, it was never realistic to think that they get to where they need to be in, in 24 months in terms of D to C and, you know, the levers that need to be pulled in terms of, of making this a sustainable business long-term are, are still being pulled today. And it's far from assured that they're actually going to work. You know, on the other side of the ledger, you had a business with very significant exposure to linear TV in terms of, in terms of the P and L. And, you know, if you go back three, four years ago, I think the peak pace of pay TC, pay TV sub losses, if you look at someone like Comcast, I think it was only two or 3% at that time. Uh, if you look now, last year, Comcast pay TV subs in the U.S. declined, I believe it was 13%. So we've seen a, we've seen a significant acceleration there, um, you know, and that is obviously further pressured, further pressured the P&L. So I think, you know, the takeaway in my mind, it would, it would go to this idea of when you're seeing disruption and you're seeing a business that is going to have a lot of pressure in terms of its evolution, the thing to do is to be careful in terms of buying just because the stock's going down, it's optically getting cheap to the extent that it even is. In this case, the DNL obviously got hurt in a pretty significant way. But yeah, I think that's one of the one of the bigger lessons. And, and Buffett talked about this in, as it related to precision cats parts when someone asked if the, if the deal was basically a bad deal. And he said, you know, the history of Berkshire is we buy things and it, the, the portfolio has a way of kind of naturally solving for itself with a guy though that was worth a handful of billions of dollars being worth many multiples of that over time as the business continues to grow and improve. And the things that don't work kind of just fade away and become a smaller piece of the portfolio, which, you know, I think that that's part of the lesson that I take away from this one, which by the way, kind of, kind of mirrors what you see from the tough competitor in terms of the index. You know, it's interesting, just like there's a famous loser, average loser saying, right? <laughs> the funny thing about Buffett now, he's the greatest, right? Every time I, I run this series every now and then called trite Buffett quotes, because he says these things that sound so trite. And then as you think about them, they, you realize just how much wisdom there is. But one of the interesting things is when you buy the whole business, there's no loser's average losering because you've already bought the whole business. And like, it actually works really well with a letting renters one mindset, right? Because if you were like, hey, I'm really good at this. If I buy 10 businesses, four of them flame out, four of them are average and two of them are grand slams. That's actually an incredible slugging percentage. And if you're buying the whole businesses, there's no chance to average down. So you just get that grand slam. So it's kind of interesting. You mentioned Buffett. I, I just... I also think it's interesting, and this relates to what you were saying, right? It's it's a little bit loser's average losing, but when things get optically cheaper, I know my first instinct is to buy more. I loved it at 400. I should love it at, I should, I liked it at 400. I should love it at 300, right? I think one of the interesting things is Buffett has been very able to kill his best ideas, right? Coke stock is flat for 15 years and he's never bought more Coke, uh, Wells Fargo, he's talking about it as his opportunity cost in 2011. He does, he never buys more as far as I know after the scandal comes out and eventually he sells it all. Maybe he was too late to sell, sell it, all this sort of stuff. Airlines in 2018, he's buying all the airlines uh, on the oligopoly story, basically. And in 2020, COVID hits and he just rips the mandate off and sells them all rightly, wrongly, who knows. But he, he's been able to pull the plug. And I just wanted to ask, like, what do you know to pull the plug, right? Because again, there are business management teams, even if the management team doesn't change, like, as you said, if Satya left Microsoft, that would be a, hey, maybe it's time to trim this thing moment. But management teams, our view of them can come and go. Three years ago, Iger's a hero. Today, he's a villain. Two years ago, Zuck's a villain. Now he's a hero. Uh, when 
when is it? Like, how do you know it's not just a bump in the road? It's time to get get out fully or trim or how do you know it's not time to add? Because, you know, we, we've seen these great businesses. Netflix in 2022 reports a week quarter and Ackman flips it from he buys it at 300. He flips it out 200 two months later and, you know, six two and a half years later, two years later is at 600. Anybody like a triple. So how do you know it's not a bump in the road to be taken advantage of versus time to pull the plug? Yeah, I think the answer is it just simply comes down to your own assessment of the situation, which is not a, a very helpful I answer. I need hard and I, fast rules here, Alex. <laughs> I need hard and fast rules. I'm trying to improve. I mean, as I, I, I'd have to go back and read the post that I wrote at that time, but I, I did buy more Netflix around that time. And, you know, I think part of my assessment was the long-term opportunity, as I saw it, was still intact. The pricing power of the offering was still intact. The idea that their position in the industry was was seriously under threat to me did, did not you know, particularly past the smell test that I, I maybe I benefited from, although I have not benefited from owning the stock, maybe I benefited from owning Disney in terms of, I think I had some appreciation for how difficult it truly was going to be to try to scale globally and, and how the ability and willingness to offer that opportunity was going to be something that very few people may be able to go for. I thought Disney would be on that list. I'm less sure of that today than I was that. Um, I, I never believed that a few of the other smaller players would really have what it, what it took to go after that opportunity. You know, on, on the flip side, you can look at something like cable, which I I own Comcast for a very long time. I own, I own Charter for a shorter period of time. But, you know, I think it for me that that situation has got to the place where the thesis that I was relying on, which may be valid at the at the price that it trades at today, was just so different from from the reason I had bought the stock to begin with. And I think in those situations, for me at least, I've got to a place where I think I need I need to let them go and then maybe take a step back, take a breather, and then kind of just reassess going forward. And that might mean buying again in three months, might be buying again in three years, and might be never buying again. Um, but I for me that situation felt different. And but all I can say is that it, you know it's a one off. I, I I just don't know if there's any like I mean the the one blanket rule I walk away with from ten plus years of doing this now and doing the opposite when I was younger is not just reflexively buying more when it goes down. That's what I used to do. And uh, it can work out when you're right about the business. And I've had a number of situations where that did not work well. <laughs> you mentioned Netflix. Your confidence was the long-term story, you know, the moat, all that. The one We've generally been talking about this, I think, with a great business mindset, right? We've mentioned the tech companies. We mentioned Walmart. Uh, media companies, which might not be great businesses anymore, but you know, for a long time, we're great businesses. There's another big winner category. Now, the wins might not be quite as big on the shorter term basis, but you know, what's the best performing stock over the past 50 years? I believe it's still Altria, right? Tobacco company. And you could probably know, maybe not 50, even 50 years ago, you probably knew that less people would be smoking 50 years from then. And today, you know, so I guess my question, coal, coal companies over the past three years have been, I, I, I would put the chart of coal companies against any chart, right? These things have been home runs. Now, there's tons of things going on with coal companies, right? They were all highly leveraged. They had a cyclical boom, but these things have been great and they might be really good long-term holds on a similar, you know, I love the phrase, it's a sunset industry, but what a beautiful sunset it could be, right? So I guess I just want to just run by you. We've been talking about this through a great business lens. I don't think it's what you do. Everybody needs to know what they do, but I, I mean, can you apply the same principles to kind of, the declining industry with the beautiful sunset principle is that just someone else's game is there's no are there no lessons to learn there no i think you can i think 
And I think it, I think it somewhat applies to the cable discussion as well. My, where my head goes on, on those stories, and I, to the extent this is applicable, I think would probably be more applicable to to the tobacco story. Um, is is how much of the how much of the TSR, how much of the return that I expect over time is is kind of the organic growth of the business, for which is a capital returns driven part of the outcome. Which there's nothing wrong with that. But I think for me, it does impact how I think about what's a reasonable position size. And this is another part of the discussion that I should have probably brought up before. I think another another thing to be said for a portfolio that has capital coming in versus one that's more static is it, it makes it it makes it more difficult in my mind in terms of in terms of position sizing and letting things run. Let's say, for example, you have something at five uh, percent of your portfolio. You know, you think it gets unfairly hit. You still think it's a great business. You take it to seven, eight, nine percent. If it does really well from there, you know, a few years later, it might be fifteen or twenty percent of your portfolio, which is a, a I would think most people would agree is a fairly sizable position. And you know, it, that just feels different than if that position was eight percent of your portfolio after a strong run. So I, I just think that's also part of this discussion is is thinking about position sizing. You know, if this works, where is that going to get me to, and then what what kind of outcome will that lead to? So, for me, I, I I bucket them in terms of what is driving the TSR, and and as I think about how much you know the portion of it that's dependent upon capital returns or you know effective timing to some degree, you know how do I how do I think about that when I'm sizing the position? And now a quick break to remind you that this episode is brought to you exclusively by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. The one other area I've been looking at and thinking a lot about recently, and I think this is in part because, you know, for a long time, Buffett's opportunity cost was Wells Fargo. And today, it's not quite as bad as it was before, like October, when the Fed, when people started thinking the Fed would take rates down. Uh, But there are a lot of good banks out there that trade around tangible book. And the reason I mentioned this is because if you think a good bank, pick your number, right? Let's say a good bank can do 12% return on it right? That's nothing crazy. That is uh, on any measure that's above their cost of capital, but that's nothing crazy. And let's say they pay out six, six percent, half of that is dividends and they retain the rest of that to grow, right? Like you can pretty 12% return on equity. If you buy and hold it, you're going to get basically a 12% return. But you know, if you think over time, the multiple goes to like 1.2 times book value with capital returns, like it's not hard to paint a mid-teens or higher long-term return for buying that at tangible book. Now, we've made all sorts of assumptions there, right? But most of the investors I talk to, when I mention financials, say, I don't do financials, right? And one of the reasons I asked you this is because I know you've been an ally for a while, and you and I have traded thoughts on ally uh, previously. Ally, for those who don't know, it's the it's the old GM our financing unit. I think it's it's one of the few banks that Buffett still owns or Berkshire still owns. And I think it's very interesting when you say that because he owns, they own Ally and Capital One, which are both pursuing either branchless or branch light models, which is kind of where the, they unrelated, unrelated. I'm, I'm off track. I guess just, do you think investors, when they dismiss banks are dismissing a sort of a source of these letting winners run? Now they're not going to be like huge grand slams, but you know, if I said, hey, I could paint you a pretty easy picture to mid-teens return over a long hold period, 
that smashes the indices. A lot of investors are dismissive of that. And I, I wanted to ask you both on banks, but just on the general, like the financials, mid-teens model, that is another one that generates a lot of wealth over time. That is basically what Buffett pursued in his late stage career. And I don't see a lot of investors talking about that. So I just wanted to ask that because I know you've looked at Ally and you've looked at these things before. Well, I'm, I probably should have just got to the, I don't know, financials answer sooner. <laughs> that, that would have made my life a little easier. Cut me off earlier, Alex. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think the point's there. I mean, it's that's basic, it, it's largely aligned with what I see in something like Alley. I think if if this works over time in terms of what I think they can do on the deposit base and in terms of how I feel about, you know, the, the asset classes that they play in and, you know, a reasonable assumption in terms of capital return to shareholders and you know kind of the financial framework you laid out i think i think that's correct and i think it i think it'll work well you know it's also a business where as as we've seen over the last year or two at every turn there's just a new thing to worry about right i mean we've dealt with in their case we've dealt with crazy runs in used car pricing we've dealt with significant moves in interest rates we've dealt with you know the the regional banking issues and what impact that would have on the deposit base etc so you know, we've gone through a number of tests and for the most part they they've shaken out reasonably well but i think it's probably fair to say that that will not be not, that will not be the last test so you know getting in a position where you're truly comfortable owning something like this and what that means in terms of position sizing i think that's that's probably the, the more the, the important question to answer yeah no they're just hard because look banks are black boxes right and i think everyone worries you're going to invest in lehman in 2007 where you know lehman they never, I don't believe they ever reported a year of negative ROE. They reported 20% years ROE every year until 2008, they're bankrupt. And people worry about that. And I, I hear you on that, but you know, a lot of the, the newer examples, right? The First Republic, the Silicon Valley Bank, you could look at Silicon Valley's bank and it was right there on the balance sheet, right? Held some maturities, securities. It held at 100, fair value 40. We have 30 billion of equity. I'm making rough numbers. So we're negative 30 billion in equity if you mark the things to market. Like you can look at the banks and, I'm not saying like a Citigroup or a JP Morgan, they have so many assets. They really are black box from the outside. But some of these smaller banks, you know, they're just like, hey, 50% of our loans are to commercial real estate. Yeah, you don't know the 500 loans that they did, but they'll give you high level stats on them. And I just wonder if investors are because of fear of that, if they're cutting that off. On the other hand, when I talk to financial experts, investors, they'll throw out like four stats at me and stuff or things I hadn't looked at where like, oh shit. But you know, being a generalist, sometimes that does happen. So I just wonder, investors are so hesitant to invest in a lot of these things if they're they're cutting themselves off. And I know in late 2022, a lot of investors would say, hey, you know, we just saw the deposit run. This is why you can't invest in banks. And my counter would be, hey, if the banks survive the deposit run, like with COVID, a lot of COVID businesses, I like to say, hey, COVID's the worst thing they're ever going to see. If they survive the run, like to me, they might deserve a higher multiple now, not a lower multiple because they've proven they can survive six months of zero revenue. Anyway, I threw a lot out there. Anything else there? Yeah, no. I, I mean, I, I think the famous quote is there's more banks than bankers, right? I think it's a business where you you really need to feel good about the culture and the management team and and what that all means over time. And, you know, we had we had a very uh, notable example in the industry of Wells Fargo in terms of, of culture and management team and incentives, you know, a handful of years ago. You know, Ally in the last year or so, we've seen very, you know, I would say concerning issues in terms of C-suite turnover and the like. So it's, you know, I think it's an ever-present part of the business. I I think that's true everywhere, but it certainly feels more acute in in financials because, again, as you well laid out, a mistake can a mistake can kill you. Whereas another business, a mistake maybe means that you need to, you know, adjust or do something to to try to get back on track. So it's a it's a business where you really need to feel confident in people that you can trust with the capital. Last question I want to ask you. So we started this all with the idea of best ideas funds and. 
you know, best idea funds, as I've understood them, are, you know, a guy says, hey, I've got 20 smart hedge fund managers and all of them will come to me and be like, here's my number one idea. Here's my number two. Here's my number three. And what they'll say is, hey, I'm just going to go to my 20 smart hedge fund managers and I'm going to take all of their number one idea. I'm going to put it into a fund and put a 5% weighting. And now I've got a best ideas fund, right? And isn't this better? Instead of investing in everybody's second best idea, you just invest in their number one idea. And I've heard this idea pitched a ton of time and I think it fails every time. And I'll, because we're running a little long, I'll lead the witness. But my, I think they fail because the person who's putting them together doesn't have the conviction, right? Like if I was putting a best ideas fund of Alex and you were one of the people and Microsoft was your idea in 2014, I would have been out in 2017 because I would have said, oh, thesis drift, right? He, he mm-hmm. bought it at 10X, it's at 25X, thesis drift, I'm gone. You had the conviction to hold. On the other side, if you had bought Microsoft for 10X and then it went to 6X and you sold and I had invested in your best idea on the cheap stock, I think I actually would have been doubling down, right? Being like, oh, this guy, he, he can't, he doesn't have the stomach. He can't handle the losses. So I would lead the witness and suggest best ideas funds don't work because the person running them doesn't have the conviction and doesn't understand the idea like the person who's actually putting the best idea on. But I, I would ask you, like, what do you think about that thesis? Where do you think it falls short? Do you think it falls short? I think the way you described it makes perfect sense. I have no idea how these things are typically managed. My thought would be that the best ideas fund is just simply the collection of best ideas from the managers that are selected. Why you would then overlay your own decision making on top of that seems a little bit odd to me. Um, I would I would think that it would be something close to equal weighted. Um, but to the extent a manager is making decisions on top of that, yeah, I think that'd be kind of odd. Um, and I would I would be a bit questionable that that's that's going to work well, particularly on a uh, after fees basis. So yeah, I would have I would have the same doubts that you have in terms of that being a particularly uh, fruitful approach. Uh, we're almost at an hour. We've covered pretty much everything I w- wanted to cover. Uh, again, I'll include a link to the Letting Winners Run post. And I think there was one other post of mine that I put in there. So we'll include links to both of those. I don't know. We didn't really talk uh, what's in your portfolio today. We can, we'll can. we just have to schedule the fifth one. You know, five-time guests <laughs> get a yet another Value Podcast uh, t-shirt. So you'll have that. Nice. Too. But anything else nice. you wanted to mention on this or anything else going through your head these days? No, that was a great conversation. Again, I did tell people to go listen to your, to your conversation with uh, with Bill. Bill Brewster over at the Business Brew. Well, conversation number, what number is it? Three or four? For you? No, you on you on Bill's. I think it was three? number three with Bill. And Bill, I, I keep asking him, is that a record or not? And he hasn't responded to me. So I don't know if I'm the, the, the T-shirt winner there or not. <laughs> so he's got to get the T-shirts going. But yeah, I would say people should go listen to that conversation. And, you know, I think they're... Those two conversations are probably opposite sides of the investing spectrum, but they're both very relevant in terms of, you know, making thoughtful decisions and kind of figuring out who you want to be as an investor. And I think that's a huge part of this game. Well, Alex, I really enjoyed this. We're going to, this was different, but I, I had a bunch of fun. It was, as you hopefully could tell, I, I really enjoyed your post and I found it very thoughtful and I was trying to really in, did a lot and this helped connect some of the more, some of the other dots for me. So really enjoyed it. Enjoyed having you on. Uh, Congratulations, almost. I think we'll probably have to take a two or three month hiatus before we can get you back. But looking forward to having you back on a little more sleep deprived and uh, we'll go from there. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Have a good one. A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.